Hello, Harvest Community Church. It's good to be with you all today uh, as we continue in our sermon series uh, in the book of Mark. If you remember uh, last week where Pastor Mike had left off, you'll remember that the Pharisees and the Herodians held an unholy huddle, right? And what they were seeking to do was to destroy Jesus because... Well, there's a lot of reasons why. First off, he's getting a lot of fame, and he's starting to threaten their power. And, and so they're starting to huddle up. They don't like this man, Jesus, even though there's nothing not to like about him, right? He, everywhere he goes, he's healing folks. He's casting out demons. He's doing amazing things that everybody should be praising God for. And yet these particular groups of people have found a way to, to turn that into an opportunity to destroy a man. Well, that's where we left off, and we're going to pick it up in that exact same conflict, right? So let's, let's look at our Bibles, Mark chapter 3, 7 through 12. Listen, we're going we're gonna to cover a big chunk of Scripture, 7 through verse 30, right? That's a lot. The first part, we're going to kind of move pretty quick because it's just, it's narratives and it's talking about geography and some things that are happening. Much of our time is going to be focused on the last 10 verses, but I I don't want to skip any of this because it's the word of God. So let's look, Mark chapter 3, 7 through 12, where we're, we're going to start. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idonium and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd was, was seeking to, not seeking to crush him, lest they crush him. They're pressing in on him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And wherever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Right? Like, listen, Jesus is 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 famous spreading. Everywhere people are going, they're talking about what this man is doing. And they're coming from far and wide. And so we see that here. And it's so much so that they're pressing in on him. He tells the disciples, listen, have a boat ready. Why? So I can get some space. Everybody's wanting to touch me. Everyone is wanting to seek a healing. And and they're pressing in. They may actually crush me. So I need you to envision that. right? Imagine what that might look like. Imagine the mob of people that's coming from all the areas to see this man, Jesus. Really, this section is is just a summary of the first part of Mark, really, as we see that that Jesus' mission is going out. But it's in the context of controversy and opposition But man, some great things are happening, right? The tension's continuing to rise, though. His fame continues to spread, and and people are coming far and wide to see and to meet this man, Jesus. But Jesus is continuing forward in his mission, right? He, He was sent to accomplish a particular thing. He's out preaching the word of God. He knows he's gone to the cross, and he has many things to accomplish along the way. But a critical step in that mission's about to happen. Right? And so we're going to see that now where he chooses the 12. So look at Mark 3, 13 through 19 with me. It says, and, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, 
and John, the brother of James, who he gave the name Boandres, that is the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. See, at some point in the midst of all of this controversy and opposition, Jesus finds time to go up on a mountain, right? And he he calls his disciples to himself. But from that group of disciples, he actually appoints 12 apostles, from the larger group. See, the word apostle just means messenger, one sent with a task or a commission. And while the list of the apostles' names actually doesn't contain a lot of information or details, there are a few points worth thinking about. One, look at this. It says, Jesus called to him those whom he desired. Right? He, what did he desire? He desired 12 men. Right? And unashamedly so. He calls these men to himself. And contrary to what the popular culture might think, that's not the crazy thing. It wouldn't be strange that he called 12 men to himself. In our culture, that might be very strange. Well, you've got to have this many and this many, so many girls, so many guys, and you've got to make sure that they're from different ethnic groups. No, Jesus calls 12 men to himself, and that's not what's strange. What's strange is the group of misfits that he actually calls. Right, Because here's the thing. He calls this band of misfits to join him in his mission. These are ordinary men, but these are going to be the big 12 that turn the world upside down with the message of the gospel that he's going to give them, which is amazing to think about. See, they didn't have a proper background. They didn't have proper training that would make them the, the ordinary candidates for this mission. I mean, what are we talking about? We're talking about a few fishermen a tax collector. We're talking about a dude who, who is seeking to overthrow the Roman government. He's a radical, right? And so many different guys. See, it's my guess that not many rabbis were going to the local fishery, to the tax booth, and to the political rallies to get their next disciples, right? That's not my guess. I don't think they did that at all. Think about your normal high school basketball pickup game, right? I I hated those, by the way. Even though I was tall, I was all, I mean, I was born chubby and it only got worse from there, right? And so like the worst thing was I generally got picked last and then I was always on like Skins team. I'm like, this is a double lose, right? But, But just imagine like if you're picking your team, you're probably not getting the guy who has a one inch vertical leap, right? You're not getting the guy who's out of breath when he goes over to the water cooler walking, like, you're not getting the guy who, who, who can't see and has no arms. Like, that's not who you're picking. What are you doing? You're picking the best of the best. But it doesn't appear that these are the guys that the normal rabbis would go select. I, I love it. I mean, Jesus is not your typical rabbi, is he? I mean, Jesus can and does use anyone. It's a fact. I mean, this is going to become evident as we continue through the book of Mark That these men, I mean, they have constant failings. They have constant struggles, constant fears, constant doubts, and many other shortcomings. So why would Jesus pick these men? Well, it's a little bit of speculation, but but here's, I think, the reason. They're not the main reason. They're not the heroes of the story. Only King Jesus is the hero, and he will not share his glory with another. So it's no doubt that he chose these guys that the world would say, you've got to be kidding me. And he's like, no, these are my guys. I'm going to, I'm going to train them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to disciple them. I'm going to show them what it looks like to follow me. And then, oh, I'm going to give them real power 
and they're going to do amazing things in my name. I think that's why. I mean, Jesus has already told us that he has not come for those who the world considers righteous or, or important, right? So it wouldn't be surprising that he chooses those whom the world considers very unimportant and the people that no one wants to talk to to reach those sinners in desperate need. It's, he's going to work mightily through them. It's much more about Jesus and his mission, not their outstanding resumes. I think that's the point which is such good news for us, right? I mean, that's the first point on your map. See, in choosing these 12 men to be apostles, Jesus is showing that that you are not bound by your past if you're empowered by his spirit. That's that's so good to think about. We should should sit on that for a moment because you might be thinking, man, like, yeah, I know, like, God saved me. I'm so thankful. And you're just like waiting around until Jesus returns or you die. And you're doing nothing because you think, for some reason, God can't use you. Like, I've just blown it. I've screwed up my life. I can't do anything because, well, no one's ever going to take me serious. But, but can I tell you something? You're not who you once were if you're in Christ. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're in Christ. You have a new identity. And you have real power because if you're in Jesus, Jesus is in you. And so God can and does use those who the world would say, what do they have to offer? Man, if you have Christ and his spirit in you, you have the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. What more do we need? We have his word. We have his grace. We have his spirit. And so these men are going to figure that out as they continue. Next thing to notice, though, is these 12 apostles have two main purposes. Look at it. The first one is they are to be with Jesus. Right? Isn't that beautiful? And then they're going to be sent by Jesus. So that's their two main purposes. Hang out with me, guys, and then I'm going to send you. And to do what? To preach and to have authority, to cast out demons. I love the fact that relationship comes before mission. So many times we forget that. So many times we think that, that Jesus desperately needs us to go get his job done. And trust me, he works in and through us. That's for sure. But, but you need to know something. What we need is Jesus. And that's why he calls these men to spend time with him, to live with him, to do life with him, so that he can, they can understand what it means to walk like Jesus, to be like Jesus, so that when he sends them out, man, they know, they're trained, right? This is just not one time a week. No, they spent life with him. We can learn a lot from that guiding principle. Relationship before task. <laughs> man, I can learn from that, right? See, Jesus understood that what was primary was not what the apostles could do for him, but what he could do in and through them. That's what's primary here. And the same is true for us. But in order for that to happen, they need to be with Jesus. They need to learn from him. They need to observe him. They need to imitate him. And they need to learn all the things he says and what he does. And yet God's going to work through them and their individual personalities just the way they are. But he makes them new. Jesus knew the best way to train these men was not just a lecture one time, once a week. No, they had to do life. See, people, you and I, we don't primarily learn best by just reading a manual. We don't. And, or hearing a long talk. That's part of it. And I think sometimes that's what our Christian walk looks like. We come here on a Sunday or on a Friday night, and that's where our Christian life terminates. And, and if that's where you're at, I guess it's okay that you're there, but don't stay there because you're going to be deficient in your walk. It was never to terminate on a one-time gathering. 
See, you don't separate secular and sacred things. You're in Christ. Your whole life is a living sacrifice to the Lord. And so these men are going to spend their lives with him. We have to train. That's what discipleship really is. You're learning Christ. You're a Christ learner. But then you're doing. You're seeking to obey. By what? His power. So that you can get forgiveness. No. (laughs) The relationship. Remember? You already have his forgiveness. You already have his power. Therefore, now you can do these things. And, and we know it's true, right? I think about uh, when I was growing up, I, my, the only sport that I might have been all right at would have been baseball, right? Because you know, if you hit it far enough, you could run to first base, right? And so my dad, he would work with me and he would take me down to the pirate games and I would watch these guys. Now, if that's all my dad ever did, how good of a baseball player do you think I would have been? Probably not good. I would have got to see some things. I would have understood. I would have observed. But then when I picked up a bat, if that's my only training was watching someone else do it, it'd probably be pretty deficient. So we would go home. We'd watch a pirate game. We'd go to the game. That was a blast. He would always buy me some good grub. We'd have a fun time, me and my dad. But then we would play catch when he'd come home from work, right? And, and then he would actually take me to practices. And then he was my coach. And that's a whole other story. But I was thankful for that. But, but when game time came, it wasn't because I watched the Pirates and how awesome they were that I was good at baseball. It's because I put in the time. I put in the sweat equity. I understood because my dad taught me. And then he said, here's a bat. Here's a glove. Here's a ball. Let's spend some time together. Why do we think that, that somehow walking with Jesus is different than that? See, that's what discipleship looks like. There's a great little book called uh, The Master's Plan of Evangelism written by Robert Coleman. And he describes Jesus's method of training. So listen to this quote. He said, Jesus had no formal school, no seminaries, no outline course of study, no periodic membership classes in which he enrolled his followers. As amazing as it all seems, all Jesus did to teach these men his ways to draw them close to himself. He was his own school. He was his own curriculum. And the same thing's true for us. See, we draw near. You want to know what God's like? Read your Bible. It's a living and active word. We draw near to him through his word. We we pray. It's It's a crazy thing to think about that we get to talk to God in heaven who has all sovereign power, who sees you, who knows you, who loves you. And it's another crazy thing to think about the fact that he gives us his spirit to, in, to dwell in us, to empower us to obey him. And so that, that's the, the top part, right? Now let's jump into the next section because the next section's got some, some things that we're going to have to take some time and work through. So look with me at Mark three twenty through 22. We're just going to work our way through the text and see what the Lord has for us in his word. It says, then he went home. And the crowd gathered again. He can't get away from these guys, right? Like they're just following him. This mob of people's following him. So much so that he cannot eat. Okay, this is, this is tough. Ministry is hard on Jesus. And when his family heard it, they went out and seized him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Whoa. Right? I want you to think about this. 
Like, is, why did they think he was out of his mind? I thought about that as I was reading this text. Is it because his blood sugar was low? I have no clue. Maybe it's because he's doing all these things and everyone's following him around. But I mean, he actually has some real power to back up his words. He preaches and teaches with authority. The things he says actually happen. And yet his family says he's out of his mind. I mean, those who should be Jesus's greatest cheerleaders are throwing him under the bus in rejection. His family sees all that's happening and somehow they come to the conclusion Jesus is a lunatic, which I find to be crazy. But then the big shots who have come down from Jerusalem, they, they come to visit this redneck region of Galilee, first off. This would have been like them stepping down off the mountain of Jerusalem to come down to see the peasants. And when they get there, they say, actually, it's way worse than he's a lunatic. No, he's, he's possessed by a demon. It's way worse. He's not just lost his mind. No, he's possessed by a demon. So I guess it's not true that seeing is always believing because they can't deny what's happening. See, Jesus, his family and these religious big shots, they're so blinded by their sin and unbelief that they would go to the point of saying the unthinkable. I mean, think about it. What they're saying is that they have seen all the healings. They've heard about all the casting out of demons, the teaching with authority, the calling of disciples, the forgiveness of sins. And they said, this is all the work of a raving madman who's possessed by a demon. That's their conclusion. And that's, that's, that's hard to think about. But we should not be surprised. Right? I mean, think about it. Some of you may have relatives who think you're like crazy. Oh, they found Jesus, Jesus found them, however you want to say that, and now they're lunatics. They are, woohoo, crazy. And when they come over this Christmas, all they're going to want to talk about is how Jesus died to save our sins, and they're going to keep on preaching that down our throat. All I want to do is eat turkey, right? They're a lunatic. Or they might say, I, man, like they really look like they enjoy this. And then they have friends that look like they really enjoy this. I think they're like a part of a cult or something. Because for some reason, we sh- we're excited about the fact that we, has a, we have a risen Savior, like, you, you should get your Jesus freak on. If no one ever thinks you're a little crazy for Jesus, I got to ask you, like, you're either suppressing that, you've not understood it, or you don't know him. Really, I think that's the only conclusions, right? Because when you understand Jesus, you're going to get a little strange. As Pastor Mike likes to call it, you're going to wave your Jesus freak flag. And people are going to say terrible things about you. And we shouldn't be surprised They did it to Jesus. Why do we think that because Jesus got a crown of thorns, we somehow will get like a bed of roses? Why do we think that? Jesus loved everyone perfect and they murdered him. You think you're going to be so nice that no one's ever going to have a problem with you? That's delusional and it's not from the Bible. You're going to have people who oppose you. Jesus did. And and we shouldn't be surprised that he's being rejected. It was promised. They must reject him. Look at John 1, 9 through 11 with me. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Talking about Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I mean, you think the Pharisees, the big shots, the ones who are studying the scriptures, that they would see, this is Messiah. 
I mean, God had been quiet for 400 some years. Jesus steps on the scene. He puts on flesh. He's doing all the things that would have been promised in the Old Testament. And they say, no, he's filled with a demon. And it's, I mean, how blind must they be? Their spiritual blindness runs deep. The world did not recognize Jesus as the Son of God. As a matter of fact, so far in the book of Mark, only two people have. God the Father and demons. I don't know if I should say people. Demons and God the Father have recognized Jesus as the Son of God so far. Which is pretty crazy to think about. Who do they think this miracle worker is? Well, it goes on. John three nineteen says this. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, you got to get this. They are not victims of darkness. They are lovers of it. Big difference. No, they love their darkness. They, they see. They see plainly. And instead of embracing Jesus and recognizing he's the Messiah, they say he is filled with a demon. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. They're in the domain of darkness. They cannot see the truth, even though Jesus, who is the way, the truth, the life, is standing right in front of them. They're staring right at him. They cannot see. Jesus is truth personified, and they are looking at him and saying, you are filled with a demon. Can you feel the tension? He takes this controversy head on with two parables, a promise, and a warning. And that's where we're going to look now. So let's continue. Let's look at 23 through 27. And he called them to him. So, so here, here's how he's going to respond. And he said to them in parables. First, he starts with a question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Good question, Jesus. <laughs> if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Great point, Jesus. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Once again, man, he's just knocking it out of the park. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Bravo, drop the mic. Couldn't agree more. I mean, think about it. What they're saying, that sounds like a madman. That's what it sounds like. They sound like they're deranged. Because they're blinded. See, Jesus first responds to this scandalous accusation with a logical question. And then he follows it up with a parable. And he says, think about it. Like, Jesus is saying, like, listen, truly, listen, if I were possessed by the devil, then Satan would be working against himself. Does that make sense, gentlemen? I don't think so. And, and what are they going to say to that? Right? It, the work that Jesus is doing is in direct opposition against Satan. Then how can Jesus be empowered by Satan? Answer, he cannot. Why would Satan cast out himself? He wouldn't. Why would Satan cast out his own demons? He would not. And so Jesus is just hitting them with logic. This would result in Satan's own destruction. And it seems pretty clear to me. But what about these guys? Well, Jesus continues. Look at verse 27. He said, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. I mean, I love this text. I love it because what is Jesus describing here? He's gone on the offense in the argument, but he's telling the story of a home invasion actually, 
right? The strong man here is Satan. And, and Jesus is actually the stronger man. He's coming to the, the house of Satan, or you could say the world. I put on flesh. I'm coming here. You think you're the prince of this world? Well, I'm coming to cast you out. I am the stronger man. I'm binding you out, and I'm going to come and ransack your place. Well, what's his place full of? Souls. And Jesus is coming to get them. He's coming to get the captives. He's coming to set them free. I love that Jesus is coming in and he is taking what is his. This is beautiful. Jesus has come to set captives free. And that's what he tells these men. See, Jesus, when he cast out demons, he, this is not the work of Satan, but it's part of Jesus' divine rescue plan. And if you're sitting here right now and you're trusting in Jesus, well, then you, my friend, are a walking, talking miracle. And you have been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, which just goes to show that the apostles got some work done. Because I don't know about you, but I think it's amazing that we stand in, let's just say, western Pennsylvania, right? Because we've got Armstrong, Indiana County. I don't know if PVC's in Butler. But anyway, western Pennsylvania, and there are people here who love Jesus. Do you find that to be mind-blowing? Because I do. Because Jesus stepped on the scene in the, the Galilee region, right? In the Jerusalem area. And that message has went through him, through his apostles, through their disciples, and has spread the whole way to this moment, to this time, to you right now. Can you, oh, that should encourage us the fact that his mission doesn't fail. Jesus does not fail. He accomplishes what he sets out to do. And he does it through people like you and I. Why? Because then he gets the glory. He gets the glory. There's no way you and I would do this apart from the power of Christ in us. We have no power apart from him. See, Jesus has come to liberate men and women from the grip of the evil one and to crush Satan under his foot. He's fulfilling the promise that happened in Genesis 3. But he's also, listen, we know this because in 1 John 3, 8, the second half of it, it says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. Now that's, that's part of the means. The ultimate reason that Jesus came was to bring sinners to his Father. But part of that was crushing Satan. He must do that to bring them to him. So that's our second point. Jesus came to bind the strong man, also known as Satan, to prove himself as the stronger man so that he could plunder Satan's house. That means the sure destruction of Satan, freedom for the captives, and glory for God. Jesus truly is the stronger man in every way. He is triumphantly victorious over Satan wherever he goes, even at the cross where it appears as though he was defeated. What a great God we have in Christ. Right, so, so look at, now, then, he, then he goes on to the promise, right? Look at this, this is beautiful. Mark three twenty eight. he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. See, Jesus will show his greatest strength through submitting to the will of the Father by going to the cross as a substitute for sinners like you and I. It's gonna look like his greatest defeat until he triumphantly resurrects from the grave which is an amazing thing. Like Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is profoundly awesome. You and I cannot think enough about it. We need to dwell on this. 
I mean, if you're here and you're in Christ, you've received this gift of grace. You've received this gift of forgiveness by faith in Christ, what he has done. And in that moment, he swallows up all your condemnation in himself. This means that all your past, all your present, all your future sins are covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with you or I. It has everything to do with Jesus, what he did in his life, his death, and his resurrection. That means, when he says all your sins, that means stealing, that means pride, murder, lying, idolatry, hypocrisy, uh, adultery, porn, drug use, drunkenness, you name it, the list goes on and on, and it's all covered. And you're forgiven, and you're made new, you're washed white as snow, and you have the the love of the Father upon you. It's an amazing thing to be in Christ and to have him in us. Listen to what the great reformer Martin Luther said. He said, Christ died for me. He made his righteousness mine and made my sin his own. And if he made my sin his own, then I do not have it. And I'm free. (laughs) I'm free. Isn't that great news? Free to what? Free to worship. Free to love. Free to obey. Free to, to, to do the will of God. What a great thing it is. See, Jesus forgives us and he sets us free. But not just to do whatever we want, but to do the things that our ultimate heart, with a new heart, desires to do. See, that's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus declares all our sins, whatever blasphemies, they're forgiven. Think about our man Kanye West, right? You may or may not have heard of him. But this man at one time said he was God. And it appears as though, and I'm going to just assume it to be true until I think otherwise, and even then we just got to wait till heaven. This man has had an encounter with King Jesus because he says Jesus is king now. And, and that is a radical thing, and yet it's not. I'm never surprised when Jesus saves people. Are you? Because I'm not. I think sometimes, and I can, I can do this, we underestimate the power of the gospel. We think somebody's too far from saving. That's why Jesus picks these men. Everybody's like, those guys? Yeah, those guys. Because his gospel is powerful when it's accompanied by the power of the Spirit to open blind eyes. And if you're here and you trust him, you know this. You've experienced this. All their sins are forgiven. Kanye's blasphemy of saying that he is God, forgiven, made new. See, Jesus is king. And and see, the thing is, Jesus never casts out anyone who's seeking forgiveness through him. So if you're here right now and you're thinking, man, I have done things that there's no way he could forgive that. Well, he's going to go on. He's going to give a horrifying warning. But there's only one thing that he would say is an eternal sin. So this is a, this, by the way, this causes people so much challenge and fear at times. And I got to tell you, I got saved at like 22. And so I didn't have that same, let's say, fear. I mean, it was a, whoa, I didn't realize there was such a thing until I read that one time. And that was like a little bit of a head scratcher. And I had to like do some work. But, but I know that there are people who grew up in the church that when you hear the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin or the eternal sin, that this is like you're trembling because you, even if you're sitting here in Christ, think, man, I, I've done that. I can't be forgiven. And so I want to have the right temperament here. And man, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would help you <laughs> and comfort you 
and give you much grace and draw you close to him. See, when I found out I was preaching this particular text, first off, I took a deep breath, and then I asked God for a mega help. <laughs> and I, I then went and I started to prepare for it, but part of my preparation was just asking some people in my friend group, hey, when you hear about the unpardonable sin, what do you think about What comes to your mind? What emotions do you have? Then I was hanging out at a coffee shop in Indiana, and I started asking some other people who don't even know me, and they probably thought, that's a strange question. But I got some real interesting answers back. I really did. And so I want to bring light to this text, because the amount of different answers I got was intriguing and sad at the same time, because there seems to be a lot of confusion here. So Holy Spirit, help us, right? So Mark 3, 29 through 30, this is where we're going we're gonna to start landing the plane. That doesn't mean we're almost done, but let's look. It says, but whatever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So according to this text, it seems as though there is a sin that will not be forgiven right? And that raises a serious amount of questions as we think about it. So let's take them and kind of one at a time. So what is this eternal sin? That would be my first question, right? But before we answer that question or seek to answer that question, I want to tell you what it's not, right? It's not mere unbelief, right? I had someone tell me that. The reason is, is because then all of us would never be able to be able to be forgiven, right? Because at one time, all of us were unbelievers, Right? And then we became a believer by grace through faith in Christ. I heard murder. Right? It's not murder. Why? Because Moses, David, the Apostle Paul, that would mean that they are far from forgiveness, and that's not the case. It's not denying Jesus. Right? How do we know that? Uh, spoiler alert, Peter, three times, coming up, hang in there. It's not even blasphemy. Why? Because Paul called himself a blasphemer. Right, so we know it's not that. Well, so what is it? What is it? Well, first off, you've got to keep your head in the context of the text. First off, Jesus doesn't specifically outline exactly what the eternal sin is. But when we look at the text in the context of what's happening, I think it becomes very clear that blaspheming against the Holy Spirit involves attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan and his demons. I think that's what it is. I mean, the religious leaders have seen the power of God on display. And yet, they see this, they see God working through this man, Jesus, by the power of his spirit, and yet, with hard hearts and wide open eyes, they refuse to give God glory that he deserves. They see it. They shamefully stare Jesus in the eyes, who is God in the flesh, and they give glory to their father, Satan. I think that's it. And because of this, Jesus has sternly warned them that you're about to go to a place, if you haven't already, where there is no repentance. But why? Why does he say that? Well, because ultimately to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to reject and refuse the only one who has the power to awaken the eyes of the heart to be able to see the beauty of Christ, to give life, right? Listen to what D.A. Carson has to say on the subject. He says, the New Testament reveals how close one may come to the kingdom. Tasting, touching, perceiving, understanding. And it, it also shows that to come this far and reject this truth is unforgivable. So it is here. 
Jesus charges that those who perceive that his ministry is empowered by the Spirit, and then, for whatever reason, whether spite, jealousy, or arrogance, ascribe it to Satan, have put themselves beyond the pale of forgiveness. For them, there is no forgiveness, and that is the verdict of the one who has the authority to forgive sins. I think that's what, he's, that's what it is, right? So then the next logical question is what? Have I committed this sin today? Some, I actually read some pastors and pointy-headed theologians would say, no, this particular sin could only happen in the presence of Jesus while he was walking on the earth. And I thought about that and I prayed about that and I started looking around. And as nice as that might sound, I wouldn't go that far and I would encourage you not to go that far. The whole time I had Pastor Mike, who's taught me many things, in my ear. And here are the words that I heard him say. If it's not in there, right? If it's not in there, if the Bible is silent, Scott, be silent. So I'm going to just be silent here. I think, I think, yeah, I think it could happen. But, but remember, this is not something you and I can accidentally commit or stumble into. This is a long rebellion in the face of undeniable truth of what you see without a shadow of a doubt. And instead of receiving what you know is true, you reject it and you say, this is the work of Satan. I don't know if it's a one-time thing or a hundred-time thing, but here's the thing I know. This is a persistent, deliberate rejection of the Holy Spirit's work and giving all the glory to Satan instead of God, the one true God who deserves all the glory. And I would say that's got to be it. But, but here's the thing. It's not because Jesus is unwilling or unable to forgive. He is. But instead that this particular person is so fully sin hardened his heart against God, they would never go to the one place they could receive forgiveness. See, the thing is, is then, then you got to ask the question, okay, so if it can be committed today, okay, next logical question, have I committed it? Right? So here's what I want you to know. I have a few friends who are Christians, and yet they're paralyzed by this. And, and I keep praying that God and just the Spirit would just free them from this. Because I hate seeing it. Because I really believe that they, they fear this, but, but I want them to be so comforted by the grace of Christ. They're in Christ. Christ is in them. They've not committed it. But it doesn't matter how many times I can say that until the Holy Spirit just turns on the light for them. And so if you're here, man, I pray tonight that the Holy Spirit would do that in you and through you. So if you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation, then, and you're concerned, well, first off, I want you to know and remind you in this moment that if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then Jesus is in you and you did not commit the sin. I just want you to know that. But look at Ephesians 1.13, right? Because it doesn't matter what I say unless I can show you in the Bible. See, at the moment you believed in Jesus for your salvation, Christ was in you, and, and you're sealed, right? So Ephesians 1.13 says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's, it's done in that moment. He's in you. Therefore, you cannot have blasphemy because he doesn't dwell in that person, right? So we can trust this. So get this, if you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and he lives in you, then you've not blasphemed him. No, you haven't. Christian, you have been gifted with a precious gift of eternal life in Christ. Therefore, you have not committed an eternal sin. 
you understand? And the fact that it says eternal sin, by the way, just for a side note, should tell us that, that hell's wrath and fury is eternal because eternal sins require eternal punishment. We should not think that it's a temporary thing. No, it's forever. But if you're in Christ, that's not your future. Your future is in the presence of God. And, and Paul says in Romans 8, 9, he says this, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, And then he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So three responses to this sermon for the Christian. One is from two weeks ago that Pastor Mike gave us. And I think it's one that you should just like mark down until Jesus returns or you die. This should be every time you respond to a sermon. And it's this. Think about the presence, right? And it goes back to when he called the apostles to be with him, right? So you be with Jesus this week. Be with him in his word in community, get in a community group, get with other believers, spend time with Jesus on your own and together in community, but be in his presence. And, and while you're in his presence, I want you to think about the fact that you have been pardoned, right? You've been pardoned. Rejoice in the fact that, that in Christ, all your sins are forgiven. And that means you have an eternity in his presence. And then remind yourself, you have real power And so go, go in the authority and power of Jesus and set captives free. Oh, what an amazing opportunity that you and I have to be King Jesus's ambassadors. We get to represent him wherever we go, whether it's a coffee shop, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's your workplace, whether it's at the t-ball field or wherever you find yourself in a given week, you go in the power and the presence and forgiveness of Christ and you get to You get to represent him. You get to tell others of him. You get to love these people. You get to seek the lost. What an amazing opportunity that you and I have. Because here's the thing. If you're trusting in Jesus, man, like somebody's had to work in your life. They had to. And so we have the joy of sharing that, right? I mean, I don't think we even understand all the things that have happened. I know we don't. There's been grandmothers, neighbors praying for you, many people praying for you that you probably have no clue about. I remember years ago when I first came here, I met some friends who are even here this evening and they said, what are you doing here? Right? Because you knew me before that makes sense. And um, this family, while my sister was dying of cancer, man, they loved me. They brought me into their home. I had a friend my same age or around the same age. And, and so they would invite me to their house. And, and it was like silver spoons, man. This dude had like everything. He had a pool table. He had like, I mean, I just loved going there. But he could have had nothing and I would have loved going there because, man, did they love me. And I didn't understand it always and, until later on. I would understand, man, these people love Jesus. That's why they're so full of love. And they made such an impact on me. So when I came to Harvest, I found out that they go here and that was an amazing thing. And, and they, man, she wept at the thought that her prayers were answered because she prayed all the time that I'd be saved. And she told me that story and it just, it amazed me at God's kindness in my life to put me in their presence. And what a good thing. And you and I have that same opportunity. What a gift Would you be so courageous to open your home and invite people into it? 
Would you do that? Man, we, we have this great opportunity coming up with Thanksgiving coming and with Christmas coming and all the festivities that we have, man. Enjoy life. Celebrate what's good. But invite people who are far from you into your life to celebrate that with you. Would you do that? I mean, seriously, like that's a to-do. Write it down. Make a plan. Because if you don't, it'll just seem like a good idea. You'll walk out of here and you won't do it. But like right now, who are you going to invite into your home to love? To love, to feed, to enjoy, to laugh with. And trust God's going to give you everything you need to do what you need to do in that moment. Pray for them, love them, encourage them. That's for the Christian. For, for those, I guess, that are here and are still not convinced of the truth of Christ and the gospel, well, I want you to consider the second part of the text that we just read in Romans. It says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. See, I don't want to spend time right now thinking and discussing about whether or not you've committed the unforgivable sin. Because here's the thing, if you did, you wouldn't care anyway. You just wouldn't care. But my guess is that you have not. But that does not mean that you somehow right now should be able to breathe a sigh of relief. You should not. You cannot. And and here's why. Because the truth is that no matter what, all of us are sinners. And you've committed a, a gazillion sins against a holy and righteous God that are forgivable. But if you sit here and you're not trusting in King Jesus for your salvation, even though they are forgivable, you've not been forgiven. And the forgiveness is available to you. The table has been set. Come and drink from the fountain of living water. Receive forgiveness of sin that can only be found in the person and work of Christ. Put your faith in King Jesus. And receive forgiveness of sins. Receive adoption into his family. But if you haven't, you shouldn't breathe a sigh of relief. Because you are still in your sins. And the wages of sin is death. And it doesn't just mean you take a dirt nap. That means you're under God's wrath. And that wrath is eternal. And I don't say that to scare you, although it should terrify you to your core because you don't even understand all the complexities of that. And yet Jesus goes to the cross. He opens his arms wide. He takes God's wrath in your place and he absorbs it in and through himself. He raises from the grave. He says, all who are weak and weary, come to me, receive forgiveness of sins, put your trust in me and I'll forgive all your sins. All of them, anything you've ever done, I will forgive you. I will make you new. I will wash you white as snow. Will you trust in Jesus? That is the question. Will you believe in him? I pray you will. Because if not, listen, you're like, well, and I remember thinking dumb things like this. And if you're thinking this, this is dumb. I I remember thinking like, well, I'll just wait, man. I think I'm just going to like enjoy life, wild out, you know, turn down for what, do my thing. And then like when I'm older, Yep, I'll cash in my chips and I'll receive forgiveness. But I got to do all the things I wanted to do and then I got to receive forgiveness. It's like I got the best of both worlds. That's stupid. That's stupid. I thought that. That's dumb. Because I got hit by a drunk driver, broke 18 bones, could have died right then and there. And as I was laying in Allegheny General thinking about the kindness of God, who I didn't know for allowing me to live in that moment, Life became very real. Do you realize that your life is like a mist? We've had some foggy mornings this week. 
if you get up early enough. It's easier now that we've turned back the clocks because the sun comes up later for me, which I think is very helpful. And when you get up, you'll realize there's mist everywhere you look and the sun comes up and it's gone. That's your life. So if you're here right now and the Spirit's working in your heart to say, oh, I know I sinned against you. Do not resist him. Receive the gift of eternal life. Receive Christ. Receive forgiveness of sins. Receive his spirit. And, and guess what happens? You go from out from underneath the wrath of God into his eternal delight upon you. All your sins are forgiven. You're his child. You can rest. And he'll do the work from here on out because he's done it to this point. Will you trust him? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.